right, take your Bibles and open with me to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. While you're turning there, I'm going to make two brief reminders for you. First of all, you should have received a bookmark that looks like this when you came in. Uh, It's called Be God's People. It's the series that we're in this summer. And the front of it says three questions to catalyze life transformation each week. These are three questions that I gave in the message last week. And I want to encourage you, use these questions as a way to prepare your own heart to come each week and receive uh, the Word of God as we preach through the Beatitudes. And I hope they'll be a blessing to you. And on the back are just simply the Beatitudes listed. Matthew chapter 5 verses 3 through 12. And there you can begin to memorize those. You can use them just to meditate upon them each week. And hopefully that will be a help and encouragement to you. Also, uh, on our resource wall, we try to feature a resource. We don't talk about this a ton, but we try to feature a resource that will just help you in your walk with the Lord and to grow. And I just want to point out a book. I think it goes along well with our series this summer. It's entitled Being a Christian. It's written by Jason Keith Allen, who's the president at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. It's a phenomenal help. It talks about how the gospel changes our life in every area of life. And so if you're at a point where you could use a resource just to encourage you in your walk with the Lord, this would be a helpful one. It's on the resource wall. You can pick that up on your way out today. And um, let me just also say this, that that is not a commercial nor an infomercial. We don't make profit off of the resource wall. We purchase those books as cheaply as we can and pass them along to you. We don't profit from that. And so I just I want to be upfront about that. We're not making money here. I get nothing from that little infomercial that I gave on that book. I need a better agent, I think. You know what I'm saying? But my point being, I want you to know in all honesty, we're not trying to sell books. We're trying to build people. And that's our heart here at LifePoint. Let's talk about being God's people because we are striving to raise our expectations on life for this summer. We've talked about how Jesus sets people free and transforms us to be God's people, to live in His kingdom, uh, to live in His blessing by His kingdom values. And what we know from God's Word is that walking in godly wisdom begins by embracing kingdom values. And I want us to look at the first kingdom value this morning by beginning with a story. Everybody likes stories, right? I want to tell you about Gavin Peacock. At the age of 16, Gavin Peacock left school to play professional football. Now, I say football because it's not football as we think about it. It's that sport called soccer, right? He was in Western Europe, and he went to play for Queens Park Rangers. And here's what he says about that. At 16, I had achieved the schoolboy dream. Everything that the world says will make you happy. The fame, the potential fortune, and the great career. And yet, he said, I wasn't as satisfied as I thought I would be because football was my God. You know, in this world, we are told that having it all is the end all to happiness. You get it, you got it. And what Gavin's testimony starkly reminds us and confronts us with today is that to obtain everything in this world will not give you the one thing you most desire. And as we look at this first kingdom value this morning, I want you to see that what Jesus offers to you, he invites for you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says this, Blessed are the poor in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to see this morning that Jesus comes to those who are spiritually helpless and hopeless to save and to give abundant life in His kingdom. 
Now this first beatitude that we look at today really has a twofold reference to it. And I want to break it apart so we can better understand what it means. But the first part of it is simply this. It's a, a poor, a poverty, or an impoverishment. And it references a poverty of money or worldly resources. Now, we don't have trouble understanding this for the most part. We get this. You say the word poor, that's what we think almost immediately. And seldom as a description is this desirable for any of us because if we were honest, most if not all of us would say that I would prefer to endure the suffrage of affluence's misery and struggle more than dare pursue joy with absolute poverty. I mean, that's just natural for us to say that. Now, that's not to say this, that all who have any measure of wealth or affluence are miserable. That's not true at all. As a matter of fact, I'm not even talking about money or wealth, but something very different. What I will say about it is this, before I move on. This is true about money and wealth, that all who worship their wealth will end up in the only thing it can provide ultimately, and that's its misery, because it cannot provide true joy as our hearts are inclined to believe that it promises. Now, I'm not talking about it doesn't provide some nice things, some comfort and conveniences in this world. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the very thing Gavin Peacock mentioned when he said the reason football didn't give him everything he expected it to, because instead of letting it be what it was, he made it what it could never be, a God to his life. And that's the temptation with money, friends, is that we buy into something that it purports or promises to us because of what we believe about it. Let me give you uh, some statistics that I saw this week that kind of uh, magnify and highlight this very point. The U.S. combined household wealth has just set a new record in recent months, surpassing over $100 trillion. I don't know about you. I don't even know how many zeros that is. But I'm going to tell you what, every one of them is packed loaded because it's capital T, trillion dollars. Almost unfathomable. And yet at the same time, the suicide rate has dramatically skyrocketed within the United States. You know, I don't know that I would have even been able to use this illustration had I not found it and implemented it before this past week when we've been struck by two suicides of people who, in our eyes, seem to have had it all, and yet life didn't provide a measure of satisfaction that gave them hope enough in that instance of their life. And friends, I don't mention that today to in any way degrade those individuals or their families or that situation. But if you and I don't deal with life where it really happens, all that this world offers to us will not be able to provide for us what it seems to promise. Can we, can we exist and know the joy and the happiness that that would even seem to be promised in the scripture? Material gain will never be able to heal a broken heart. You see, the real problem is not money. Whether you have it or don't have it, it doesn't really matter. The real problem is not wealth or treasure, but the problem is what we believe about that money or what we believe about that wealth or that affluence and what we believe about ourselves or other people because of it, whether we have it or not. Pastoral ministry has done this for me, among other things. It's helped me to understand that anybody can be enslaved to money, both those who have it and those who don't simply because of what they believe about it and what they put their hope in for it. And so it brings us, though, much 
closer to the point of what Jesus is saying to us in this first beatitude. You see, Jesus is not speaking to us about our status in life, but rather He is speaking about the qualifier of our life in this first beatitude. And I bring about this understanding of the problem of wealth or affluence or money upon us because no matter where you live or where you exist or who you are and what you have, there is a promise that money seems to inherently have that is imposed upon us and that we can so quickly buy into. And it is that understanding of that promise that I want us to apply not to money, stuff, or wealth, but to the very person of our being. That's what Jesus is saying because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And friends, I'm going to tell you what, if there's anything worse than being poor in life, it's poor in spirit. The book of Proverbs tells us that there are people who are rich and are righteous and that there are people who are rich and are unrighteous. And the book of Proverbs tells us that there are people who are poor and righteous and that there are poor and unrighteous. You see, when Jesus speaks of poverty or impoverishment here, he's not speaking of material means. He is using our understanding of that in order to impose it upon the being of our life to show us something much deeper than just material things in this world. And so we move to the second aspect of this kingdom value that poor applies to a whole person's being. It is the mindset of poverty within one who has no ability within themselves or around themselves to change their situation. It's this absolute lack of resource in any manner to even so much as address, let alone to change, that deep need that they feel, that longing that they have, or that desire within them. And poor of spirit marks the person who recognizes a complete lack of spiritual worth, both by their nature, but also by that natural ability. And they live within the light of their own deep spiritual poverty and bankruptcy. Now, my point to you is, I hope, Jesus' point to us to make this desirable for us. That's the point. Now, oh my goodness, you start, you lead with that, and then you say, now everybody ought to want this, right? You take the most undesirable thing in the world and tell us it should be the most desirable thing with God. That's exactly what I'm telling you today. But there's a reason. There's a reason. You see, because poor in spirit is the entrance into the kingdom of God. It's the threshold. Because we recognize in ourself an inability to save, an inability to satisfy. Poor in spirit, I don't need to tell you, we've already seen the illustration, but because it's in my notes, I'll go ahead and use it. It contrasts the greatest value of the world, the value of self. One commentator says of this, you'll never find a greater antithesis to the worldly spirit and outlook than this beatitude. The spirit of the world is the spirit of self-assurance. It's the spirit of self-reliance. It's the spirit of self-sufficiency. It is the spirit of self-righteousness. And poor in spirit as a kingdom value contrasts the very essence and striving for personal glory in this self-salvation. Let me use a biblical illustration that may help some of you. And if you're not familiar with it, I think you'll be able to identify with it very quickly. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It demonstrates what poor in spirit means just before the prodigal son returns to the father. If you're familiar with the story, you know that there was a, a youngest son of two who went to his father and said to him, You know what? 
I'm not living in your kingdom. I don't like the way you rule your world. Give me my inheritance and I'll go make my own kingdom. Now, the word inheritance is important there because it tells us two things. Number one, what he was asking for is typically something that comes after the parent's death, right? Because it's an inheritance, right? But he was speaking to his father. What was Jesus teaching us in this parable? The son was saying to the father, I wish you were dead. And by law in that day and time, the father could have turned his son over to the authorities and legally had him killed for what he was asking. But instead, the father said, okay, you consider me dead. I'll give you the money. And that's what he did. And the story tells us that he went and he lived a lifestyle like no other. Full, licensed indulgence. Every pleasure was his. He had stuff. He had friends. It was everywhere until he ran out of money. And you know what happened to the stuff and friends? It went wherever the money went. But it was no longer with him. He came to a point in his life where he not only had nothing, but he saw himself as nothing. And the story tells us that he was slopping pigs one day. And as he, have you ever slopped pigs? It's rotten. I'm not going to act like I have, but I know some people who have. As he slopped the pigs to feed them, he fed himself because that was the only place he had to eat. And one day he was struck that the lowliest servants of his father's kingdom lived better than he lived. And so if he went home, maybe, just maybe, he would be able to be the lowliest servant in his father's kingdom. And hoping that he would be able to do that was better than the reality of what he was doing. And the story says he went home, but as he was still a long way off, the story says, the father was waiting and watching and ran to him and made him not the lowliest of servants, but reinstalled him to full sonship. Made him a son again. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And the picture I want you to understand from that story today is where it is that the prodigal son was when he realized of his need for the father. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. It contrasts the very essence and striving for personal glory through self-salvation. So it causes us to ask, well, Pastor, must I be, must I recognize my state as that of the prodigal son in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved by God? And I would say to you today, without reservation, without hesitation, Jesus says, yes, you must, you must. There is no one in the kingdom of God that is not poor in spirit. You see, poor in spirit is the posture of heart that submits all of life to God to receive life from God. And the poor in spirit recognizes a, a helplessness in their state that births a hopelessness about themselves. We're not talking about a poor quality of faith here. We're not talking about just a little bit of insufficiency. If you can muster up a little more from within you, you'll have what you need to receive. No, rather we are acknowledging an absolute powerlessness and bankruptcy of all resources apart from Christ. This is the person who has reached the end of themselves and can only hope in Jesus as their refuge. So imagine that one who in helplessness and hopelessness of the very being of their life is now told the kingdom is yours. Not just a small square corner in the shed, but the whole kingdom. That's what Jesus is offering us to here. That blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, God does not just shush 
to quiet us. I'll let you stay around, some people think he says, if you'll be quiet and stay out of my hair. God doesn't throw a pittance at us to satisfy a temporal pang of provision or need to say, would you be quiet? There's enough for now. Just don't bother me. That's not what God is doing here. That's not what Jesus is teaching us here. God comes to the one who in the state of their life is hopeless and helpless. And he supplies not just basic necessity, but he pours out the abundance of eternal life. Such that you can share with others and never run out of resources. Jesus comes to the spiritually helpless and hopeless to save and to give the abundant life of his kingdom. The poor in spirit rests in this one truth from Isaiah 57, 15, when he says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and in the holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, the poor in spirit turns to God in desperate hope for help and finds more than they could have ever imagined, eternal life in his kingdom. This is what Jesus is offering to us in this value. Everything in life that removes or diminishes our felt need makes this value difficult for us to embrace. Anything that eases our burden in this life, anything that that salves our comfort or our convenience strikes against this to make it more difficult to fully embrace. And, And it leaves us with only one prayer from Psalm 16, verses 1 and two that simply says preserve me O God for in you I take refuge I say to the Lord you are my Lord I have no good apart from you you see the poor in spirit is that posture of life that forms the first confession of our need for Jesus and the culminating prayer of our relationship with him For this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. The blessing of of being poor in spirit is the same blessing of of blessed are those who are persecuted. These are the bookend blessings that you are the part of the kingdom. There's nothing about God that is withheld from you when you live poor in spirit because he pours it all out to you. This is the whole of relationship with God. And so it causes me to ask, have you confessed your need for Jesus? Not just with part of your life, with a convenient part that you probably didn't like anyway, or in a way that doesn't disrupt your comfort, but have you confessed your need for Jesus with your whole life so that complete dependence would be placed in Him and in Him alone? And without Him, there's no hope. And without Him, there's no help. Isn't that a little radical? I mean, isn't there a little something in between here and there? I'm just telling you what Jesus said, friends. But the people who inherit the kingdom of heaven, the, the people who know and enjoy life with God, are poor in spirit. Now, I don't know about you, friends. There isn't anything about this beatitude that that strikes me as being normal or natural or normal. I was a strong-willed kid before they knew what the term strong-willed was. And comparing me in my natural state would make any other strong-willed child look normal and submissive. I've been independent since my first day self-reliant, I don't need so often for all the wrong reasons anybody to tell me what I can or can't do because I will prove you wrong no matter which way that goes. And on and on the list of self-sufficiency leads me. But in every lesson I have learned, 
it never works for good for me. Because you didn't do it right? Maybe so. I'm open to that. But I think there's a much grander reason. Because it's not in us naturally, any of us, to be able to do that. And what Jesus is teaching is he's confronting the very nature of humanity that tells us in differing ways to differing degrees and in different dimensions for all of us and each of us because we're all self-reliant, self-sufficient, and independent in our own ways. That will never be the way to get that joy, that gladness, what only God can give. You see, the poor in spirit is the threshold of entry into the kingdom. You don't get in without it, is what that means. And the poor in spirit is also the entrance into relationship with God. There is no relationship with God without this kingdom value. This is not something we get and get over and then pawn off on somebody else at a garage sale or on the marketplace. This is the culminating entry into the kingdom. And and if we are to live and to reside and to enjoy the kingdom, this must become the first defining characteristic and value of our life. When we turn to Jesus, He and He alone makes us alive. For the Bible says we are made alive with God in Christ Jesus. We were dead. God makes us alive with Him in Christ Jesus. And He reconciles us to God. We were separated eternally from God. But because of what Jesus has done, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, we've been reconciled to the Father We were the ones running home that the Father was waiting on. Relationship with God brings heaven and the eternal one day reality of it into more and more the prevailing reality of every day with God now. Friends, the more that poor in spirit becomes a championed, exalted value in your life, the more sufficient God will be for you in every way. And the less that you value it, the more you downplay it and depend on self-sufficiency and the other things in your life that diminish it, the less will God will ever seem relevant to you. For the one who is abysmally bankrupt in spirit is the first recipient of the poor kingdom of God. So you have to be asking this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Let me just say this to you. What Jesus does from the very beginning of his public teaching ministry these being the first words that he utters personally in his preaching, challenges the deepest aspect of the human nature that keeps us separated from him. And one of that is the way we think about God. God is not demanding something from you today, friend. Because God didn't come to get something from you. You see, that's the very essence of self-righteousness in human nature. If I do enough, God won't be able to deny me. And that's the lie that deceives us first. Because there's never enough that we can do to accomplish what only God can give. But that same fundamental philosophy is the foundation for every man-made false religion in the world. That if you do the right things this religious way, God will owe you. And friends, I don't care if everybody does for you in your credit. You will not do enough. But the point is, God didn't come to get something from you. He came to give something to you. And until you have that shift of mind, you will not and cannot receive what he has. For the greatest value in God's kingdom brings eternal life in relationship with him, because Jesus comes to the spiritually helpless and hopeless 
to save and give the abundant life of His kingdom. I want to take the last remaining moments and I want to talk to you today about how do we cultivate the poor in spirit in our life. It's not a threshold we get in and get over. It's not only the threshold, it is the consuming all of God's kingdom. How do we cultivate this fuller experience of life, not only in God's kingdom, but in relationship with God and those being two of the ones? And I want to talk to you about three spiritual exercises. It's not about the activity, friends, but it is about cultivating the very essence of our being. You must take inventory of your life regularly and specifically take inventory of your heart in order to guard your life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And I've told you a number of times that as a first-year seminary student, I had about 12 hours of master-level courses. I was working 20 to 30 hours a week, and we were serving 15 to 20 hours a week in our church. My wife was working full-time. We were going two separate ways at all hours of the day and night, uh, studying and trying to trying to keep life together. We'd only been married a little over a year, and we weren't really sure what we were supposed to be doing. And now Redneck had come to town. I was living in a big city, and whew, I mean, it was overwhelming. And I remember one of the first weeks of seminary, in my devotion time, the Lord impressed upon me Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, it's the wellspring of life. And I thought, man, I don't know what immediate application this has, but obviously the Lord's impressed it upon my heart. This is important, so it must be something later today. Maybe later this week, or maybe even later in this season of life. And so I wrote on a small index card the, the script of this verse. And I put it on the dash of my truck. And for the next three years, it was the first thing I saw every time I stepped into my truck. And I, I can remember in my mind thinking, man, I don't know why you have that for me today, Lord. But I know you gave that to me. You know what I've come to learn? It wasn't for that day, that week, that month, or even that season in life. It is for life. It is for life. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. How do you guard your heart? These are the exercises that I want to grant to you today to entertain, to nurture in you, to cultivate the poor in spirit. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned Spiritual exercise number one. And I'm going to tell you, if you do these as nothing more than routines, they're not a formula. They're not a formula that produces the same thing every time. They're exercises. They are practices that cultivate something deeper. And number one is, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's been said that pride is the mother of all sin. I want to add to that, pride is also hell's gatekeeper. The very thing that deceives you will be the very thing that locks you and keeps you behind locked doors in that condemnation. If you do not regularly confront the pride of your life by the truth of God's word, you will give your heart to every little pleasure that it is offered and you will be held captive by the lies with which you've been deceived in those. Because those lies always have a way of speaking to the things that our hearts are wanting. And what Paul does here in Romans 12, 3 is he directs us to consider and to think of our life not in light of what we can do, but in light of what God has done by the cross of Jesus Christ. In light of our salvation, guarding the heart begins by purifying and training the mind to confront the pride of life with truth. That comes only from God's word. We need to guard against bloated pride. You know what bloated pride tells you? Bloated pride is taking place in you when you tell yourself this. Well, I'm too good or I'm too smart or I, I would never let that happen to me. That's bloated pride. It's just run amok. And you know what happens to a bloom that doesn't get taken off the, the source, right? 
That's what bloated pride does to you. Because you just don't believe. Because, you know, I, that would never happen to me. I'm, I'm, I'm too good. I wouldn't let that weakness uh, take over. I'm too smart. I would never go that deep into it. Whatever your excuse is, that's bloated pride speaking to you, friends. But we also need to guard against the denial of pride. And the denial of pride says this, I would never do that because I'm not tempted by it. Oh, well, that's not a temptation to me. And so what you do is instead of understanding the way temptation works and how sin works its wiles in you, you identify only the action that took place and you can separate yourself from it because you weren't the one that fell to it or gave yourself into it at that time. And you justify and rationalize yourself by going, that wasn't me, I'm good. Friends, what you need to understand is your temptations are far worse than you imagine them to be. And your capability is far more than you would conceive it to be. And what the pride of life does is it fuels self-sufficiency in us. And where self-sufficiency remains in any area, it's negating God-dependency for every area. What you tell yourself when you are not tempted will define the narrative you listen to when you are tempted. I'll explain that to you. When you see another person fall to sin, maybe it's a moral failure or maybe it's just a smaller indiscretion or you see them continue in a cycle or habitual negative choices that lead them down a path that's walking away from God or walking away from doing the right thing, whatever it is, if you tell yourself, I couldn't do that, I wouldn't do that because of bloated pride or denied pride, what you're doing is setting yourself up for your own failure. Because you're failing to recognize the depth that sin has in you and on you. And all you're doing is walking closer to the edge of the very cliff that sin's going to encourage you to jump off of. And you'll say, well, my situation was different. My details were different. I, 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 you know, this is what happened to me and I couldn't help it. And what you'll do is you'll flip from someone who did the very thing that you said you would never do. And rationalize it by the very way you explain it away. That's pride, friends. That's pride. It's lying to you. It is lying to you about you. And it is going to crush you when it deceives you. But the poor in spirit says this. God, I know there's no limit to my sin nor end of my destruction. But by grace, I take joy only in you, Jesus, and in what you have for me. I'm going to tell you, the last year or so of my pastorate has been one of the most disheartening seasons of my life that had nothing to do with this church. I have seen more friends, more colleagues, and more acquaintances not have momentary lapses judgment, but who have lived in dark, deep deception. They did it willfully, they did it knowingly, and they preached against anybody else doing it, all the while why they were doing it. And many of them in the very area with which they were doing it now are. And then all of a sudden they're exposed. The moral failure adultery, cheating on their wives, ruining their families. I, I can tell you, it is overwhelming. And I've told some of our staff, and I, I've told some of the men in this church that, that I'm accountable to, that you know one of the things that God did in me, and th- th- one of the things that God did for Kristen and I many years ago, was when I heard one of these stories, it just struck me because it was by someone I didn't think it was possible. And I came home from the conference that I'd heard it at. and I laid in bed. It was dark one night, and I knew Kristen wasn't asleep. And I just said, I realized this week I am so much closer to that than I ever thought I could be. And every time the news of another one who fails morally comes about, and oftentimes in between that, Kristen and I just have this gut-wrenching, soul-shaking, seismic activity conversation takes place that says, but for the grace of God, that's us. 
none of those men that I know of that have failed morally intended to destroy their families. None of them. They just gave a little bit more of their heart away to a temporary pleasure in the moment. But they didn't want anybody to know about it. They didn't even want to remember it themselves. But yet they kept deceiving themselves because their sin wasn't like everybody else's. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Your sin is worse than you know and it's destruction than you could imagine. Take joy in this. Jesus is our only refuge. In Him and in Him alone will there be any joy that cannot fade, spoil, or perish. Spiritual exercise number two. Not only should you not think too highly of yourself, but you should think in sober judgment. Sober judgment is an accurate understanding of self and of everything else that is in this world. And you know, an accurate understanding of self doesn't actually begin with self. That's one of the greatest ways to be deceived, is to think that it starts with you. Rather, let the Word of God fill you. Let the Word of God consume you, that it might purge you where that pride and self-deception is taking root in you and press it out, that it might bring the purifying righteousness of the truth and the light of God's Word to bear upon your life. The only way that you can live centered on Jesus Christ is to let the truth of His Word be the center of your thinking. Think with sober judgment because listen to me friends the philosophies of this world are intoxicating they'll make you dizzy for a while but then they'll lead you on your posterior ultimately that's how they're dizzying and they destroy and when you get up from them and you recognize their deception you realize the destruction that they have wreaked while you were indulging in them Christ-centered living begins with truth-consumed living. And truth is only in the Word of God. Refuse to let anything control your mind or for you to be controlled by anything that does not align with the Word of God. And you do this by setting His truth as your ruling guide. Guard against the opinions that seem so confident that are so freely offered today. Guard against the feelings and the emotions that are so overwhelming. They must be convincing. Guard against the convictions that are formed through the alliances of of opinions and feelings and realities that you see in this world and go, this must be. A lot of important people said it was, and so it is. But it is counter to God's Word, and when it is counter to God's Word, it is counter to truth. By faith, think in accord with God's Word and let everything else be formed from His truth at work in you. Listen, friends, I know in my own life, and you'll learn this too, that thinking with sober judgment in accordance with God's truth doesn't mean that you'll comprehend, that you'll understand, that you'll agree or even like it when it comes to you. That's the reality of the Christian life. Why? Because He is purging us of everything that is us in us, and He is purifying us to put righteousness into us that He's already placed on us. That is the work of sanctification. And so when you read the Word and you go, you know, God, this has happened today. This has happened in the last week. This has happened in the last month or the last year. I don't like what your Word says. I'm not sure I agree with it. Lord, I don't understand it. How in the world could that be true? Wherever you are on the spectrum of opinion, on the spectrum of emotion, or on the spectrum of conviction regarding God's Word, do not let that be your guiding uh, uh, light. Rather, let the Word of God be that which stands in front of you. You put your faith in God by what He says in your Word, and you walk after that. The very essence of faith means you won't see what God has for you, but you can know who God is and that He is for you. And you follow that until God brings to sight 
what he has given you to take hold of by faith. And the glory that you walk into will be greater than any suffering you had to walk through to get there. Any sacrifice that you had to give up to follow him. And any understanding or otherwise that you had before you got in here. Friends, this is the only way. And this is the way that grace points us. Grace always points us to Jesus, to think according to truth. So often in our day and time, we we define grace as something that gets us out of from sin. Oh, well, God's grace, he'll forgive me of that. It ain't no big deal. No, no, no. Anytime you diminish, neglect, or make light of sin, you're so far from grace, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because when the grace of God comes to your life, friends, God is what you want. And yes, by the grace of God, you are forgiven and cleansed of your sin. But you are not set at free to walk away from God. Rather, grace points you to Jesus where grace comes from to follow him and to walk according to his truth. The absence of truth, friends, always creates a minefield of deception by every thought. The active working presence of truth within your life becomes a a guide, not only for the direction within which you're headed, but for every step that you are taking. And in the pattern of your thinking, guard against the expediency. I just want to get this over with. Guard against the comfort that says, I don't like this. It's causing problems in me. And guard against the convenience of, I know God said do it this way, but if I just get here, I'm going to get to where he's told me to go a lot faster. You see, friends, it's not just about a destination. Because when you're poor in spirit, you've already got the destination. The kingdom of heaven is yours. God's got you on a journey, and what he's doing is he's working in your life. So guard against any of these things being the highest value and think along a path of truth that leads you only to God's glory. Sober judgment by God's truth is always worth any amount of time and energy it demands because it produces a hope and a goodness you won't find anywhere else. The poor in spirit confesses their utter dependence on Jesus by trusting to think according to his word. The third spiritual exercise, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Think with sober judgment. Walk humbly before God. The fact of the matter is, this is thinking too. You're thinking right about God. Once your heart is aligned with God and you're thinking according to his truth, you walk in this manner. You're walking humbly before God. That's a pattern of life that is motivated by grace that is at work in your spirit. You see, the grace of God, thinking with sober uh, judgment based on the truth of God, is pointing you to Jesus, who is God, truth manifested before us. And you say, well, I want to follow God. It is grace that empowers you to follow God. And how does God continue to do that? Well, James 4, 6 tells us that he gives more grace. More grace, more and more grace. God gives more grace to those who walk humbly before Him. More grace than your sin so that you can agree with God and confess that that is sin. More grace than your despondency about your sinful nature so that you can repent and turn away from your sin, turn away from yourself. And God gives more grace than your habitual brokenness to walk in truth and righteousness and to experience transformation. You say, but I have failed him so many times. And you may fail him again, but he won't fail you the first. And friends, I'm telling you, that's enough hope to break where sin has imprisoned you. Walk humbly with God, and when you do, He comes near, He purifies the heart and the mind, and He fills with joy. And friends, be careful that as you're walking with God, no measure of success gets credited for your own glory or good, because the smallest measure of success in any area has a terrible way of breeding the greatest confidence in self for every area. And so the way you do this is that you just simply embrace that which humbles you. God, I don't like this. God, this is hard. That which humiliates you within. Sometimes it's a passing comment that wasn't even directed at you, but you hear it and it strikes you. You go, well, that couldn't be. That's not me. No, friends, embrace the things that humble you because they are warring against something within you that's trying to exalt itself. 
And when sin tempts you, let your poverty of spirit not be something to hide and diminish and dismiss, but rather let it be something to lay your heart open that the grace of God might fill you because God always gives more grace to you than that which is coming against you. Walking humbly before God is how we cast off what we cannot control. Walking humbly before God is how we cast off what we are controlled by. Walking humbly before God is how we cast off that which so easily entangles. Friends, hear me. The self-sufficient can know nothing of God's kingdom. Not a little bit. Not as much as the others. Nothing. The poor in spirit inherits the kingdom. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who know no need for a Savior cannot be saved. Jesus came to save those who knew their need for a Savior and who confessed it. Pleading the mercy of God and finding the grace of God greater than they could have ever imagined. The poor in spirit walk humbly before God to cultivate a complete dependence upon God. I want to close today by finishing this story of Gavin Peacock, the teenager that got it all but didn't have it. Here's how he tells his story in his own words. After accompanying his mother to church one Sunday evening, the young pro was invited to youth group. He immediately noticed a difference between himself and the other youngsters. He says this, I pulled up in a nice car. I had a bit of money in my pocket. I had the career everybody wanted. I was the in crowd and they weren't, he recalls. And yet when they spoke about Jesus Christ, when they prayed, there was a joy that they had and a reality that they had that I didn't have. Over the next few weeks, he heard the gospel And he recognized his sinfulness and need of a savior. And an 18-year-old kid who had everything the world could offer confessed his need for a savior and received Christ. Gavin went on to enjoy a successful career in Major League Soccer. He retired as most professional athletes do and went on to become a pastor in Canada. Why? Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus came to the spiritually helpless and hopeless to save and give the abundant life of his kingdom. Friends, do you know the kingdom of God? Are you living in a personal relationship with him? Self-sufficiency will not get you there. God-dependence will never disappoint you. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would grant to us the grace to be able to look honestly and openly at our hearts and our lives and to ask ourselves, Am I poor in spirit? In the way that I live, in the way that I talk, in the way that I relate to you and to other people. Is this true of my life? Do I live completely God dependent? Where am I living self-sufficient? And Spirit, I pray for the grace today to confess to repent and to receive what God has come to give us. Help us in this time.